Ultimately, I think your home is a place that you have to define for yourself. You're not going to get some, like, tidy answer. One artifact, one physical home might not even be the answer you're seeking. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Vanessa A.B., author of the memoir Homebound, an uprooted daughter's reflections on belonging. Vanessa's adopted multiracial, multilingual, multinational, and transcontinental upbringing has caused her to grapple for years with the foundational question, what is home? Homebound approaches this question from multiple directions and with multiple definitions of the word, which begin each chapter of the memoir. This conversation was recorded in Spokane, Washington, in the Spokane Public Radio studios, in partnership with both SPR and the 2023 Get Lit Literary Festival, where Vanessa appeared as a participating author. Vanessa A.B. is a consumer protection lawyer and essayist. Born in Cameroon, she grew up in France, England, and the United States. Vanessa holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Nevada and a law degree from Harvard. She lives in Washington, D.C. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you for having me. When and why did you begin writing in the memoir form? I know that you've written multiple nonfiction articles. What drew you to memoir specifically? I was interested in eventually writing fiction. And I had this large, unusual childhood behind me. And I had... Parts of that childhood that I wanted to explore, I had conclusion and thoughts about some of what I experienced that I knew I would um, funnel through fiction if given the opportunity. And that felt, I don't want to say dishonest, but maybe a little bit like a cop-out if I didn't sort of own those experiences as my own and instead lent them to characters. And so I thought, In order to not do that, I'm going to write this memoir and explore these big questions um, as they relate directly to my own story. And then I feel like I'll truly be able to move on. Um, And it so happened that at the time when I started writing it, a lot was changing around D.C. It was a new presidential administration, and um, D.C. is the kind of town where When people win elections, their staff come in, and you can't, you don't get to tune out out there. People move into your neighborhood, they move into places that might feel like yours, and so I wanted to sort of confront those feelings. Did you find comfort in the memoir form after having written nonfiction articles and, and, you know, working in podcasts a little bit? Um, Was there comfort in the memoir form, or was it you know, entirely uncomfortable, especially as it seems to be kind of just a stepping stone to something that you are more excited about, which is fiction. There was comfort in that I knew how most of the stories ended, other than the last chapter. Um, And then there were parts that I found surprisingly uncomfortable. One thing I learned writing this memoir is that 
while I knew the stories, you know, I've never gotten therapy. And so there are parts of the memoir that I actually had not coped with, had not really dived into and really sort of come to terms with my own feelings and the things that had the things that had happened to me. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're diving in and you're editing yourself. So if you're writing about an awful thing that happened, you're reading about it over and over again. <laughs> and you're asking hard questions and you're talking to family members. You know, what did you do when this happened? Did this really happen as I remembered it? Oh, it was worse or it was maybe better. You know, it was it was still a fairly grueling process. At the very beginning of the book, you write, this is the way home feels to me. Does it also feel this way to you? I loved that idea of a conversation between the reader and the writer and our different feelings of home. But Vanessa, what does home feel like to you? And I'm wondering if home, this feeling, is a single feeling that you feel across these countries, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're finding this common feeling in these individual places, or if the feeling of home changes and, and, it's, and it's more dynamic than, than the single core feeling. Mm -hmm. I will say that something that this, this book tries to get at is how home can change for you. And how it can change so rapidly based on the people that come into your life, that leave your life. Um, and, you know, since I wrote this book, I'm, I'm married, I had um, a child. And so I, even as I finished the book, I felt pretty strongly that Washington, D.C. felt like my home. Like that is where I'm so comfortable and always happy to get back to and I have a community of friends and I have this job that I love there and um and then I had my son in in like DC is his hometown which is like wild to me like when he'll grow up his story will start there um but that makes me feel all the more rooted there so I would say my home at this point really feels like Washington DC that said, when I get back to France to visit my dad and stepmom and grandmother, there's like a different version of me that, you know, we drive past like my first elementary school and the church where I was baptized. And that feels like home too. But more and more, I have to admit that I feel like a stranger, you know, like I, I could get lost in that town in a way that I couldn't in D.C., and another thing I write about in the book is, you know, I go to Cameroon and everybody looks like me and the food that we eat are like these, it's like comfort to me. Um, the language, I don't even understand the language, but it feels like home to me. And yet even there, like strangers can quickly figure out that I'm coming from the West. My family treats me like... Um, a long-lost daughter with such care and tenderness, but also they're taking care of a stranger. Like, it's very clear that they're like, we must make sure Vanessa is comfortable hmm. because she is not from here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even though I was born there. Um, so the, the feelings of home are there, but if I'm realistic, my home home, I think at this point, is Washington. I'm going to pull a therapist's move on you. I'm wondering how home 
what it feels like. So what mm-hmm. what in your body are you feeling physically, somatically when you are in DC, when you're in Cameroon, when you're in France? What are those feelings in your body? Yeah, I in DC I feel comfortable. I feel like an a sense of ownership over my surroundings. I feel um it's funny. I um I feel less tense than I do anywhere else. I'll go to like New York for a book event and not even realize how tense I've been for like the last two or three days until I get back home and it's like <sighs> relief. Okay, I'm home again. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> um and it's yeah, I you've I mean you've hinted at that, but it's a very different feeling when I'm in France, um, what does that feel like? feels very relaxed, like I have no obligations. The part of France I come from is so slow, and people really value not doing anything and having very long lunches. <laughs> and home there just feels very chill. Like the pace of life is shockingly slow compared to America. And it's like my brain has to retrain itself to slow down and like just be, which is really nice too. Mm-hmm. And in Cameroon, home feels <laughs> like being overwhelmed and feeling guilty a lot that I don't come enough and that I have. Home feels a lot like guilt. I Like I have so much here in the United States. It's interesting. Privilege is so relative, right? I'm very aware that as a black person, In America, there are all these ways in which I'm much more disadvantaged, statistically speaking, Mm -hmm. than people from other backgrounds. And yet, I have um, this job that has offered me financial stability. There's a kind of baseline of living in the United States that, I mean, even down to how, like, the cities are designed and what people can expect from their governments. Um, And that's not the case around the world, and it's not the case in Cameroon. Um, And, yeah, and so I get there, and I feel guilty about the amount of privilege and comfort that I have in these other homes. And it makes me want to just, like, give everything away, (laughs) you know? Um, And I'm in this sort of unique situation in which I was adopted out, so I have these half-siblings who, who, who could be me and I could be them, right? Um, really smart, thoughtful, kind people who just have to fight so much harder for everything because the country is so corrupt and... A mess and yeah it kind of breaks my heart so those are the feelings I have often yeah. when I go to Cameroon I do want to come back to DC but now that you've talked about your half siblings and this idea that you're adopted I feel like we should go in that direction because that is so much a 
this book's aboutness. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a, a pretty unique adoption story. And I'm wondering if you might let our listeners in on that story and just maybe tell the brief the brief story. Um, <laughs> they can definitely read Homebound to get the full story, obviously. Um, but just so they have um, a sense of this book's maybe context is the best word. Sure. So I was born in Cameroon to Cameroonian parents. Um, My mother, at the time that she became pregnant with me, was a student, um, grad student, I want to say. And my father was a pretty high up government official in the Cameroonian presidential palace, so the equivalent of the Cameroonian White House. And he was married to another person, and they had eight children. Um, And he was fairly wealthy. Um, And by comparison, my mom was not. She was still living with my grandmother and her siblings. Um, And so my my parents had this relationship, and I was born out of it. I was very much a choice. Um, But then things went sour pretty quickly, and my father... um, my father checked out uh, for reasons that I that I explain in the book, but he just sort of stopped being involved. And at the time, I was, uh, yeah, probably four or five months old when he um, kind of disappeared. Um, and my my mother has several siblings. Um, her older sister had moved out to France and was married to a white French person, and they were having trouble conceiving. So um, she was in the market for a baby. And in Cameroon, it's very, in my tribe at least, it's very common to adopt within the family. So my aunt came to Cameroon in 89, and she was actually there to adopt my cousin. Um, But then my older cousin's mom changed her mind. And um, right time, right place. (laughs) My um, biological mom was like, I have a baby. Her father is no longer involved. I know you really want a baby, and I know you would love her. And so I was um, adopted really under the radar. My parents didn't want my biological father to find out and to try to stop the adoption. And so, um, and so yeah, they did some really kind of shady paperwork and got me out of the country and then I was raised by my aunt and her husband um, in France. You're listening to a conversation with memoirist and essayist Vanessa A.B. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the really compelling parts of this book is your relationship to your biological father and your adoptive father and in a sense, Homebound becomes kind of this investigation into those relationships. Mm -hmm. But I want to focus on your relationships with your adoptive mother, your aunt, and your biological mother, because those relationships 
they shine in the book, but in a very subtle way. I don't know if a shine can be subtle, but Mm -hmm. um, I was really, really moved by the way that you wrote about your mothers um, and the women in this book, because I might assume that you being adopted would have certain feelings Mm -hmm. towards the woman who quote unquote gave you up. Mm-hmm. And yet you're so generous towards her. You you show nothing but empathy in the book for uh, your biological mother and, and complete love, obviously, for your adopted mother as mm-hmm. well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that place? Um, well, writing about family members is always a challenge. But I felt like I had this huge responsibility to convey to the reader my admiration for them. I didn't want to paint a flat picture of these two women because they are both very strong-willed in their own ways and (laughs) have a lot of personality. Like, they are not wallflowers at all. But I just think that, like, exchange, I find it so beautiful and selfless, and I feel emotional talking about it. I mean, um... I try to be candid in the book, right, that I think there's an element of my biological mother. I think there's a part of her that wanted to punish my biological father for, um, uh, you know, getting out of the picture so abruptly. But there's all, there was so much love between the two sisters. And having had a child now, I mean, I think I knew that even before becoming a mother, but It's not easy to trust someone else to raise your baby. And I was her first child, and she loved her sister so much. She was hugely motivated by not wanting to see her older sister in pain, not wanting to see her go back to France without a baby, Um, knowing about her losses, knowing how badly she wanted to be a mother, and to just say, okay, I will do that for you. I just... Even now, like, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Um, And the flip side of that is, yeah, for my adoptive mom to take me on and to never make me feel less than her daughter. And I have never really had complicated feelings about my biological mother, in part because it was never kept a secret from me. My parents, my family were always very open. They weren't as open about my father, but they were open about my mother. We would do these phone calls where, like, I'd have nothing to say to her, but the point was we put you on the phone. Here's your mother who loves you. You're present Um, for each other in that way. Exactly. And so I never felt abandoned or not wanted. Um, That was never in question. And I think, yeah, it really did help that it was so common in my family for children to get passed around. And you talking about the generosity with which your mother gave you to her sister, mm-hmm. it makes so much sense then the, that I read generosity coming from you. It feels like a reciprocal relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering if you might be willing to read a passage from Homebound. Sure. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, read an excerpt that begins at the top of page 70 and then reading the first and second paragraphs on that page. 
where we were raised mattered. Growing up, I found that each place where I lived demanded a piece of me in exchange for acceptance. Adopting a new tongue was only the first step. There were norms to absorb, ways to behave, to think. Assimilation revised your person as it expanded your vocabulary. This was even more the case if you were, as my mom deemed me, a highly influenceable kid. On the surface level, France and England had shaped the language I used to express myself, the food and shows I liked, the contours of my behavior around strangers and adults. On a more fundamental level, these countries formed an expectation of the kind of basic services I was entitled to from the government. No doubt that sort of thing seeped into who one became. And while I easily reverted to being Vanessa Jouqua while visiting my daddy, I felt layers apart from the curious three-year-old Isai met in the little apartment. The farther I moved from Châtellerault, the farther I saw myself drifting from this iteration of me. Already, I sensed America rewriting me. But perhaps there was a limit to the mutation of our bits, a layer beneath our accent, aesthetic preferences, and expectations that predisposed us to turn into our future selves such that whatever shape our layers ultimately took, which is to say, whether I was raised in the global south or in the west, by birth parents or adoptive or step-parents, my person would have always felt fragmented and split from her father. I suppose there's no way of knowing for sure. Already I sense America rewriting me. Um, this idea that a place, that other cultures, that other people can rewrite your identity, that their proximity and influence can change who you are and the ways that you maneuver through the world, that seems like an inevitability. That doesn't seem like far-fetched at all. But, and correct me if I'm misreading this particular passage, you're also supposing that there might be a limit to the amount of rewriting that can happen, that there's an immovable self within you um, or a core self. And I'm wondering if you can expound on that idea a bit because I thought that was so fascinating. I, I don't know if this is something that I tell myself because I need to feel anchored in some way. But yeah, I mean, I look at my own life and really all of the cultures that I went through, some of which left a powerful imprint, right? Like I went through the evangelical church and that was a huge cultural and societal and political dominance <laughs> in my life. And it really shaped those views. And I think that was the intent. And even through that, my, I don't know, I feel like my core personality was like, oh, there's a dissonance. There's a part of us that cannot work with this. Um, and so what do we do? Do we risk losing our, our community and disappointing our parents because that little part of us that feels so immovable, that is such a core of us, just cannot function and also accept these other tenets? I don't know. It's kind of the only way I can explain it. Otherwise, I'm sort of like, well, where did that come from? Mm. You know, why was it so important for me to, like, extricate myself? And I think, I think it's because there was, like, this really fundamental part of me that just 
was just incompatible with these other values. And I'm not saying that makes me better or worse than other people. You know, it's just who you are. That's just who I am. Yeah, I love that answer. I think that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I want to go back to D.C. because this is, again, where you have found your home. That is where you're making your home now. Um, There's a chapter in the book called The Speculator. And you write about your time, again, working at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. You write about buying a condo, being Mm -hmm. a homeowner for the first time. And you also write in that chapter about the history of segregation and discrimination of D.C. at that time. You, you just you already said that DC is your home and that you feel like DC is your home. But in that chapter, I see you grappling with this idea that its history might actually complicate your ideas of claiming it as your home. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that that idea that a place's history might complicate whether or not you can claim it. I think that's that's fascinating to me, and I'd be curious to to know more. Yeah, I mean, I'm very conscious of. So there's this aspect where D.C. feels like home because of all the ties and connections that I have to that place um, and the roots that I've planted. But in some ways, I don't know that I can ever be more than— I I try to think of myself as like a a long-term guest out of respect for the history in that city. Um, It has a, you know— smaller than it used to be, but significant black population of D.C. natives, people who have been there for several generations, whose grandparents and great-grandparents migrated from the South when they were freed um, or freed themselves. And there's a long history of the government ignoring, displacing, harassing, targeting those communities and communities that I think are really entitled to call this town home. And so um, I call it home in that I want to distinguish myself from the D.C. that the media describes, which often D.C. is a shorthand for Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court. It's like, no, there are more of us who actually <laughs> care about D.C. as a you know, like a local... A community. A community, yeah. right, a local community. Um, but then there are the long-timers, and I want to be respectful of and mindful of, like, my place as someone who moved in as an economic gentrifier and who is invested in D.C. remaining a place where its native population can also continue to call it home. Um, yeah, it really has such a complicated history in particular for Black people. Another thing I'm conscious of is that I am African and I am American, but I am not Mm African-American. And so I feel a self-consciousness about that too um, in calling a place home, knowing that like the history there impacted people who looked like me, but my ancestors weren't in this country at the time. So I am a newcomer in this different way, even though I can sort of pass as a D.C. native. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, I think your home is a place that you have to define for yourself. You're not going to get some, like, tidy answer. One artifact, one physical home might not even be the answer you're seeking. 
And I just, I think I needed to have that experience to truly give myself permission to claim D.C., to accept my father as the person he was, to understand that, yes, this place exists and it's beautiful and I have these roots there and it's also okay for my home to not be that place, mm-hmm. um, meaning, you know, this particular part of Cameroon. That was essayist Vanessa A.B. discussing Homebound, an uprooted daughter's reflections on belonging, out now from Astra House. Look for more information about Vanessa at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This conversation was recorded in Spokane, Washington, in the Spokane Public Radio studios, in partnership with both SPR and the 2023 Get Lit Literary Festival. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.